So uh, I'm Andy Warfield. I'm Seth Markle. Uh, and we're both engineers on the S3 team. And so last year um, at uh, reInvent, during Werner's keynote, uh, Mylan, who uh, uh, was talking about uh, S3 as a part of Werner's keynote, talked a bit about durability and some of the 11.9s model in S3. And uh, the feedback on that section of the, of the keynote was really great. And so we're talking afterwards, and uh, Seth had the idea that we should expand it out and talk uh, in a bit more detail about some of the durability stuff in S3. Um, so S3 is a reasonably sizable service at this point. It's uh, been running for 13 years. And it, um, sorry, there's a bit of echo, it's throwing me off. Um, it's been running for 13 years, and it's, it's really foundational in terms of durability in, uh, uh, in AWS. So when you look at the announcements this week, we're, we're seeing like more and more uh, analytics and data lake uh, tools involved that depend on S3 as a scalable durability layer. And so with things like the, uh, uh, the Redshift Aqua uh, announcement or with the Elasticsearch Ultra Warm announcement, uh, we're seeing people build really, really cool uh, approaches to, to working with and getting information out of data. And S3 ends up being like a really, really powerful base to provide scale and durability for that stuff. And so in this talk, there's really kind of two things that we'd like to, to talk through from our experiences in S3. Um, the first one is that there are some techniques that we use in S3 that you can use in your own applications, right? And so we're going to give you some, some sort of experiences from, from our own work building it and also uh, from our experiences with customers building their own applications on top of it. Um, and then secondly, in building the applications on top of S3, there are some things that you can be aware of in terms of providing durability, and we'll talk through some of those at the end. Okay? So S3 today um, has trillions of objects and peaks in our largest region at over 60 terabits a second. And over the 13 years, we've had to scale from an initial footprint up to something that, that works at that size. And it's been scaling both the software uh, that lies underneath the platform and also the engineering team that, that provides it. I got the clicker right here. You can go. There you go. All right, so uh, today we're just going to run through some lessons from security and how they poured over to thinking about durability of, of our software system, and we believe yours as well. Um, some common threats. It's not going to be an exhaustive list, but some common durability threats that we, that we see. Um, organizational best practices that work for us that we also believe will work for you and then um, go through some examples of building your own threat models. Can I see that? Thanks. Okay, so durability is a really vague kind of thing to try to achieve. And one thing that, um, that we've kind of like learned is that it's hard to achieve really vague goals. It's better to achieve precise goals. And so there's a, an interesting opportunity to borrow an approach from a different field in, in computing, uh, which is security. And so if I talk about a threat model in a security context, do you know what I mean? Who, who knows? If you want to put your hand up if you've heard this term. Um, so about half of you. Um, so the idea in threat modeling is that we get really specific about the threat is and we use the precision that we state our threat with in terms of evaluating our countermeasures for that threat. So, like, pretty simple idea, but it ends up being really powerful. And so, what I'm going to do is walk through a security example of threat modeling, and then I'm going to talk about how it ports into a durability context. And so, in a security context, really, we ask a few simple questions, right? We want to understand who the attacker is. We'd like to get pretty clear on what the capabilities that we are going to attribute to the attacker, right? what an attacker can do to our system that we're trying to defend against, and also, what is the outcome that the attacker is looking for? Right? Like, What are the consequences of an attack if it succeeds? And we'll use those questions to evaluate whether the countermeasures that we want to deploy in the system are effective. And so if we take an example, Imagine we run an email service, right, like an online email service. So rather than focusing on security overall, in using threat modeling, we'd pick a specific risk, 
Okay, and so a risk that we might worry about is account hijacking, right? And so in this case, the attacker is someone who's trying to hijack legitimate accounts in the service. Uh, their capabilities might be in this model that they can try to guess passwords, or maybe they can gain access to lists of compromised passwords from other compromised sites. And the purpose in this case of them stealing the attacks is that you know, we'll focus on the fact that they may use those legitimate email addresses to send spam because it's a, a really uh, large vector for originating spam. And so when we go through that, we're not going to just stop at three bullets on PowerPoint. Right? And this is a pretty important thing. We're going to move to prose. And by moving to prose, we're going to write down a few paragraphs that are pretty clear about the answers to those questions. And the reason that we're going to write it down like this is that it allows us to sit down as a team of engineers and talk through it, and it encourages us to think really adversarially, right? to put ourselves in the shoes of the attacker and evaluate whether or not we're being successful at it. Okay? And so when we go to build countermeasures for it, now we have a framework to assess them against. And in general, as we start to look at countermeasures, there are a few properties that we're looking for. Right? We want things that aren't one-time. We want ongoing mechanisms that are going to protect against that specific attack. Uh, they don't need to only be technical, and this is a really important thing that you'll see in the rest of this talk. They can also be organizational or cultural. And so in the example of account hijacking, we might be concerned with doing things like applying two-factor authentication to make sure that you, know, you have two mechanisms to validate a... Uh, uh, user, especially if they're coming in from a device that you haven't seen before. But we might also go and decide to do a bunch of training with the customer support team who's dealing with lost passwords to make sure that there aren't social attacks there, right? And so there's, there's a broad spectrum of things that you want to think about doing. And it's that depth of defense, and this is a security term, again, this idea of defense and depth, that you don't need to put all of your eggs in one basket in terms of countermeasures. Okay, so now let's shift and think about this in a durability context. Okay, so building a scalable storage system, we have a really similar thing, right? We need to provide this like high degree of durability, and we're gonna do it by getting really precise about the durability risks that we wanna reason against. And so we can use a really similar model in terms of questions, right? We can think about an attacker, we can think about their capabilities and the outcomes of their attack. Except that in this case, the attacker isn't necessarily some individual who is motivated to cause problems or to compromise the system, the adversary could be like fate, could be failure or decay. Just as legitimate a thing to defend against in terms of this kind of system. Um, so in, in an example, right, we might be worried about decay leading to our drives or servers failing. And the outcome is that if they destroy enough, we're at risk of losing data. Okay? And so, Here's the threat model, and, and we're going to go through this approach with a bunch of the examples through the rest of, well, through the, the midsection of the talk. And so I'll call this out, and then I'll, I'll go through it really quickly when we come back to it later for this example. But just to go through this, we need to protect the data that we store against a fleet of components that, despite all of our best efforts, will fail at a low rate. We must provide our customers with a design for 11 nines of durability, and we assume an adversary, like failure or decay that may fail arbitrary drives or servers that may accelerate that failure rate unexpectedly because of hardware defects or environmental conditions and that may pathologically correlate failures across devices. So this is a bit deeper than three PowerPoint bullets. It's a pretty robust statement of the thing that we're trying to defend against and it encourages the team to think as if they are right, that attacker, as if they are decay and assess whether these, these help. And so we'll come back to the punchline on this specific example as we go through some of the things later. Um, but at a high level, right, we can use redundancy as a buffer. Right? We can have extra copies that protect us from individual failures. Um, we can do really aggressive failure detection to make sure that we're acting quickly when components do fail. And we can scale out repair. Okay? And so what we're going to do now is walk through a set of threats, right? a set of examples that we have grown S3 to defend against over the past, you know, 13 years of operation. Thank you. Okay, so like I mentioned earlier, uh, we're going to be talking about a list of common threats. This is by no means an exhaustive list. These aren't all of the durability threats that we experience, but these are certainly um, some of the more common ones. And the first one that we're going to talk about is facility failure. 
So this is our facility failure threat model. And again, it's, um, it's verbose, it's prose. We write it out in the paragraphs. There's this, there's this old saying that I really like, which is that writing is nature's way of showing you how sloppy your thinking is. And I've really found that to be true, that until I try to write something out, even if it's crystal clear in my head, um, I'm not really sure if I understand it. And oftentimes, the act of writing it just shows that I actually didn't understand what I thought I knew. So the facility failure threat model. And here, a facility is a building, really like a data center. Um, and the threat model is we must protect customer data we store against the unexpected loss of an entire facility. We must pr uh, provide this level of durability even in the face of regular component level failures that our 11.9's durability model is designed for. And we assume that any single facility may fail at any time and that we must still protect the durability of customer data that is stored within it, right? Buildings can fail, variety of reasons, power, flooding, networking. We wanna protect customer data in the face of that. So let's talk about some of the mechanisms that we have for this. The um, number one most important mechanism, and um, it's probably obvious once you think about it, if you're gonna survive facility failure, you need more than one facility, right? Um, and what we leverage for that is uh, the AWS concept of availability zones. So availability zones um, are independent failure zones that we offer customers. So uh, today we have 69 availability zones spread across 22 regions. An availability zone is a collection of one or more data centers that are actually physically separated in a metropolitan area. They have power redundancy with uh, uninterruptible power supplies, um, on-site power generation with backup generators. Um, there's network redundancy as well. When we choose sites for our availability zones, we do a detailed hazard analysis. So let me talk about uh, the flooding hazard and go into a little bit of depth on that to kind of give a sense of the sorts of things that we look at. So when we examine the likelihood of flooding, we take a look at like projected flood intensity data. From, um, from data sources like the uh, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, <clears throat> including looking at things like floods with a likelihood of once a century or once a millennium and what their magnitudes might be. Um, we look at the local municipal municipalities um, drainage peak flow capability. Like we measure the drainage pipes to see how capable the city is of getting water away from buildings. Um, we look at the elevation of the data centers. And all of this information allows us to put together a picture of the likelihood um, and duration of failures. And uh, flooding isn't the only hazard we look at. We also look at wind and extreme heat, wildfires, geohazards, winter storms, um, man-made hazards, uh, utilities, and others. Um, and we're constantly factoring in new data on frequency and severity. For example, um, data related to climate change. And uh, so, with this um, kind of analysis, uh, we are able to create availability zones that are independent of each other. Okay, so now we have buildings that won't fail together. The next step is that we're aware of that when we're placing customer data. And so we have facility-aware data placement. So as Andy mentioned a few minutes ago, um, we get durability in the face of drive failure because of redundancy but just plain old redundancy is not enough. We have to consider how redundant your data is assuming the next building is gonna fail. And we don't get to choose which building that is, right? And so when, when you write data to S3, for example, and you get an acknowledgement back, it's already placed in such a way that a building could fail and your data is still redundantly available. So uh, facility-aware data placement is super core as a mechanism for protecting against facility failure. Thanks, Seth. <clears throat> and so from that perspective, this, this perspective of, uh, of structuring against facility failure, you can kind of look at S3 as the original example of an AZ-based distributed system design, right? That, um, that's, that's really central to, to how we build, and this idea of placement is going to come up again as we, as we move through. Okay, so for these first three examples, we're going to drill in. We're going to get a little bit more detailed. And so, as Seth said, in the facility failure example, we're worried about losing a specific building. And so now, inside those buildings, right, inside those facilities, 
we start worrying about the hardware. And so this is the example that I, I read through before, so I don't, I don't need to go through it again, um, word for word, but we're worried about failures of, of drives and hosts. Um, and this is the bit of S3 where we talk about being designed for 11.9s. And so if you, if you look at our, um, our, our design uh, commitment, right, you see that S3 is designed for the loss of a facility uh, and to provide 11.9s of durability for data. And so let's, let's kind of think through how some of that works. Um, inside of S3, as components fail, which, which happens at our scale at a low steady rate, we need to re-replicate any data that's lost on devices that become unavailable. And so this is commonly referred to as repair, uh, but we're gonna call it re-replication here just to be clear that this isn't repair in the sense of someone with a wrench running into the data center to, to fix something. This is, a, uh, this is a software thing. And to do that re-replication of data, what we need to do is to constantly look at the health of the fleet and at the state of all of our hardware we have to be very aware of the rates and the specificity of failure, and then we have to build tooling that repairs the data, right? That, that restores any lost uh, contents onto new hardware. <clears throat> and the 11.9's model is a model that's actually a function of these rates. And so let's talk through how that works, right? S3 has a bunch of disks. It's like a few more than this, but it's around this ballpark. And you can kind of think of this as a feedback loop. Okay, so there's the fleet of disks and the servers that the disks live inside. And there are failure detectors. And then there's a repair fleet. And the repair fleet's job is to go and grab good copies of data that is exposed because of uh, any kind of loss of hardware and to generate additional replicated versions of it. And so the failure detectors end up being really neat. Um, and so down here, this is where the 11.9's idea plugs in. And so there's a bunch of math in here. It's like really pretty interesting in that over the years we've worked through a bunch of statistical models that map failures and data exposure through to repair rates. And so inside this system, the 11.9's idea is that there's a design guideline that's encapsulated in a mathematical model and it takes a bunch of inputs. The first input it takes is the time it takes us to repair. And the time that it takes us to repair is both the act of copying data and generating a new copy, but it's also the time it takes to spot that something has failed. Because if you're not aggressively looking for breakages, right, you have this, this sunk time where you're at risk and you don't know it. And so we really, really aggressively monitor the health of the fleet. And we look at the actual failure rate because at a steady state, hardware is failing, and we need to make sure that we're scaled to handle that. And so, this is not dissimilar to building a traditional like, storage array, right? If you're familiar with like, like RAID or enterprise storage design, you make actually almost exactly the same decisions, right? You've got like a RAID 6, say, where you have two parity drives. So you have a bunch of drives that have your data. You have a couple of drives that provide parity in case any of those drives fail. And then typically you have a couple of what you'd call hot spares, right? You have a bunch of drives that have nothing on them so that if you fail, one of your hot spares can become a replacement for one of the lost drives and you do a volume repair onto it. The thing that's super fun, honestly, about working with S3 is that building that kind of system in the cloud means that we can take advantage of elasticity for that repair fleet. And so as we monitor these two things, right, the time to repair and the failure rate of hardware, if things aren't where we want them to be, we scale at the repair fleet. And so we just provision additional hosts to be able to ramp up repair really aggressively. And so we have this like really, really, really like fantastic responsiveness that we can adjust repair in response to dynamic failure rates. Now there are two other things that are worth mentioning here. One is that it is not sufficient to look at averages. And it's, it's a really, really important thing that, that is kind of uh, evolved in the design of the system, that we're always worried about the most exposed bit of data, right? The most exposed bit of the system, because that's the one that's the highest risk. And against this failure model, that's the thing that we have to prioritize for repair and throw the most resources at repairing as fast as we can. So we always want the worst exposed components to be like well ahead of any of our tolerances in our model. And the second one, and this is a theme that will come up in almost all the categories of this talk, is you are only as good as your ability to measure yourself. And so we build auditors and monitors 
canaries, um, and a bunch of mechanisms that constantly look at the state of the system, but also the state of the repair system. And these are typically implemented as external services inside of S3 because we want them to not share any kind of failure properties or assumptions with the pieces that are doing the work. And so we have components that, that check everything and are making sure that the repair throughput is where it should be, right? That we're, we're matching what we've predicted in terms of uh, failure rates so that we can catch early if the repair system ever has any problems. All right, so uh, let's continue to zoom in. So we've been talking about uh, facilities, which are large, pieces of equipment, which are smaller. Now we're gonna talk about bytes and bits. Um, so we must protect customer data against component-level faults and concurrency bugs that silently corrupt data by flipping bits. And we assume an adversary here, for example, bad networking gear, bad drive, software bug, that may corrupt or flip arbitrary bits in the payload, that may corrupt data in transit or at rest, and that may accelerate that corruption unexpectedly because of bad hardware or environmental conditions. Um, environmental conditions can sometimes matter here. Heat, elevation, you know, altitude um, can influence uh, you know, hardware's susceptibility to solar radiation, et cetera. So this problem of data corruption is certainly not unique to, to S3. Um, it's really as old as storage itself. Um, back when you know, humans were chiseling information into stone tablets, um, that, that medium could chip, it could break, uh, it could erode, rendering the content unreadable. So data corruption is really a problem of storing something in any medium. And it's a really hard problem. But S3 holds a really high bar here, and we invest a lot in protecting customer data from the effects of corruption. And when I say investment, I'm really talking about kind of two dimensions. One is organizationally, in terms of development effort, in writing systems that are, um, that are safe in the face of corruption. And the other is uh, in terms of computational effort, as we'll see with some of the, the mitigations. But before we talk about the mitigations, I want to talk about some common myths that we often hear when thinking about data corruption. The first myth is that you know, TCP checksums protect my data. I don't need to do anything else. I'm using TCP. I'm immune from corruption. And this is flawed for, for a couple of reasons. So the first reason is it's the kernel that's assigning the uh, TCP checksum uh, to the TCP payload. Right? So the assumption is that you're handing your networking stack uh, pristine data at that point, and that no corruption uh, occurred before you, gave it to, before you gave it to the operating system. If that's not true, then you're calculating a checksum on something that's already corrupted, and the other end isn't going to detect it. Um, the other flaw with this reasoning is as networking devices get smarter, it's possible that networking devices kind of are de-encapsulating some of the TCP messages maybe re-encapsulating them. And if they flip something in the meantime, they could be calculating an erroneous checksum on what they've um, manipulated. Uh, the second myth is that CPUs don't lie. CPUs are highly reliable, right? But ultimately, they're just hardware. They're bundles of transistors. And though it's extremely rare, rare um, at our scale and with our experience, we have seen on occasion that CPUs can give incorrect results. Uh, data corruption is a hardware problem. Uh, no, it is often a hardware problem, but uh, software bugs can cause data corruption that look indistinguishable from hardware bugs, or hardware problems, rather. And um, oftentimes, it's not necessarily um, relevant whether the corruption occurred because of software or hardware. Corruption is corruption. Uh, corruption is always a single bit flip. This is also not true. Uh, corruption can take all sorts of elaborate patterns, um, some quite, quite interesting. All right, so let's talk about some mechanisms that we have. The number one mechanism that we have against data corruption is extensive integrity checking. And this really starts with the customer. So the S3 API, for example, has a field, a header on put called content MD5 and allows customers to express a checksum for the data that they're sending to S3. And so with this checksum, S3 is able to reason about, just at the front door, whether we're receiving what the customer meant to send. From there, we heavily checksum 
all the messages that we send internally, all the storage payloads that we store. And this level of checksumming is useful not because it prevents corruption, right? because the hardware or the bugs are going to corrupt what they're going to corrupt, but it allows us to detect corruption early. And when we can detect corruption early, we can take action before it becomes a problem for the data itself. So there's a couple ways that uh, we can take action. First is uh, important to understand, there's really two places where data can get corrupted. So one is in transit, and that means when it's moving between processes, either across the network um, or across you know, system memory. And the other is at rest. That's when it's residing on durable medium. Right? Those are really the only two places your data ever is. It's either moving or not moving. So in transit, I'm passing a message around. Let's say corruption happens. The recipient can recognize that, uh, will recognize that the checksum doesn't match, and it can simply drop the message. Right? And so it takes something kind of complicated, like uh, data corruption, and it turns it into something simple, packet loss. And we all know how to build applications where the service that we're talking to just doesn't respond or times out. At rest, when we encounter data that has uh, corruption, um, we can treat the drive as failed. We already saw that uh, when we have a failed drive, we have systems in place that can re-replicate the data. And so it takes something complicated, like data corruption, and turns it into something simpler, like the drive just failed. Now in practice, we don't literally discard the whole drive when we encounter a single piece of corruption. Drives are really good at quarantining kind of bad sections of the media, and oftentimes corruption is limited to just you know, a piece of the media. Um, and so while you might not be able to recover the data that resided at that particular location, the rest of the drive is good for a very long period of time. And so we reincorporate these drives back into the system. Um, but logically, you would treat it as dropped so you can re-replicate that data before you bring it back. And so the pattern here is you take something complicated and often difficult to reason about, right? Like some random set of bits flipped, I don't know how to regenerate the original data, and you turn it into something simple where the disk is gone, the message is gone. Um, I mentioned earlier one of the myths is that CPUs uh, always tell the truth. Well, the best mitigation against that is to have multiple servers involved in checking checksums. So you have a server that generates the checksums. You have another server that has to validate it. And so every time we pass a message along, even if the server doesn't need to consume that data that's in the message, it'll, it'll validate the checksum on the message and drop the message if there's a problem with it. And so this costs a little bit extra in terms of computation, but we believe it's the right uh, mechanism for catching corruption early. I mentioned detecting corruption on drives. Now, drives don't spontaneously tell you, like, hey, I've corrupted this piece of the media. Um, you actually have to walk the drives and periodically recalculate the checksums that reside in the drives. These are called fixity checks. And so we are constantly walking all of our storage media, always, and recalculating checksums to make sure that things match. And so this is the theme that you're going to see a lot today is monitor, measure, and automate. So we're monitoring all of these background processes. Um, when we detect corruption, we'll make a note of it, and we'll monitor that. Um, we aggressively remove hardware from our system that we believe is corrupting data. Um, and it's not because it's unsafe, because of our extensive integrity checking. You know, we really do believe that we have a safe posture here. But some of the mechanisms that we use, you know, dropping messages or you know, dropping the drives, can be just impactful to the system itself. And so although we're safe in the face of corruption, we still want to get the, the hardware out of there as fast as possible. So this is our second time doing this talk this week. And Seth, you, you can't see this. There's a bit of a, a thing that we're doing. Seth and I, um, we had a ton of content. And we, we had to trim a whole bunch of stuff out of our first version of the talk. And then we still had to trim some more. And then we decided we would write down times to get through each of our sections to make sure that we were like holding each other to task. And on Wednesday, I was a train wreck and went way over my times. And Seth was like 
covering me like crazy. And Seth got a really good sleep last night, and he is totally losing today. He's like giving you <laughs> loads of detail. So it's on you to speed up. A few up. minutes over. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, okay, so let's keep going. Now, so we did facilities, we did hardware, and then we did kind of like bit level corruption, right? So there's kind of like a zoom down. Now we're gonna do three examples, um, and these are a bit quicker because there's, there's less like sort of um, sort of background that we have to work through to, to make the uh, threat make sense um, that, are, that are less to do directly with the hardware and more to do with, with humans and development process. So the first one is bugs. Um, I don't know, anybody here uh, write bugs when they write code? We, we don't. I guess I'll Part of the hiring thing. <laughs> uh, no, Seth does. Um, anyway, the, uh, the way we'll talk about bugs is two-sided, right? The bugs that we'll talk about second are the ones that you probably Think about uh, when I say bugs, they're the things that you write by accident at a line level when you're working on your code. Uh, the other category of bug that we spend a ton of time worrying about is design level bugs. And so let's, let's get into those a little bit. A design level bug, right? We're, we're building not just a big distributed system, but we're building a big distributed system that's actually composed of individual distributed systems, right? The things that are doing repair, that repair process is a whole fleet of hosts that are doing repair. And even the detection mechanisms that watch the repair fleet and watch the state of the storage fleet are their own distributed systems. And so we have to be really careful with these distributed systems to make sure that they are correct. And so um, we try to be really methodical about changes at the design level. And the way that you do that is to write specifications and you have to write specifications that everybody's invested in. And so um, on that side, you know, the thing that Seth said earlier about writing something down, helping you spot the sloppiness in your thinking, uh, there's a step further, which is that like, actually coding stuff and actually writing a formal specification, you know, math in some senses kind of helps you spot the sloppiness in your writing. And so for some of the especially nuanced aspects of our designs, we take advantage of formal verification tools and automated reasoning to write specifications. And so this is an example of, uh, of a little bit of code in PlusCal. Um, you don't need to, this is, a, I think we pulled this off the PlusCal examples, right? The, no, I wrote it. But... Oh, did you write it? Yeah, I wrote it. Nice. <laughs> um, anyway, so this is a, a really simple uh, clock invariant um, uh, snippet of PlusCal you could use for a specification. And the thing you should take from this is really just that there's, there's a concise expression of design level concerns. This is not necessarily something that maps directly to the code, right? It doesn't compile in and act as a checker for your code, although there are totally tools in this space that can do that. But even writing at a design level, this kind of verification code helps you spot things that are like, you know, missed invariants or edge cases in your design that, that are gonna cause problems. And it's really just uh, an act of forcing yourself through this discipline of like making sure the thing that you're designing is correct. And so uh, in the example of TLA plus and PlusCal, there are bits of applications that the S3 team first looked at years ago and we still iterate on them when we're making changes to things like our control planes to, to use them to, to validate changes. Um, and so, you know, from a, from a more traditional bug perspective, we do all of the things that you would probably expect in terms of testing, right? Unit testing, integration testing, system testing, right? You work through stuff. We do uh, very careful team-level code reviews on things, and we take advantage of the placement that Seth mentioned in the facility aspect of the talk. We deploy zonally. We actually deploy subzonally, and so. You know, if you assume that you do a pretty good job on all of your countermeasures for bugs, but still occasionally there's a risk that a bug creeps through, the next best mitigation is to not deploy everywhere at once. And so we'll deploy initially onto a host and then a small number of hosts, and then progressively up to a single AZ. And we'll get comfortable with it, and then we'll move on, right? And so we'll stage out our deployments in a way that provides an extra level of protection. It lets us move fast with deployments, but still be correct. So uh, speaking of deployments, let's talk about the threat model related to deployment practices. All right, so we must protect against incorrect behavior caused by coexistence of multiple versions of software. And we assume an adversary 
that may introduce a server running any prior version of software that can roll your software back to any prior version. All right, so we just saw how we're going to have zonal deployments. After you deploy to that first zone, you now have at least two versions of your software running in production. Um, considering that other versions might roll back, you could actually have many versions, but you're going to have at least two versions of your software in production at any given time. Okay, so why is this problematic? Why could it be problematic? Uh, well, your components communicate. They either communicate directly through TCP messaging or you know, something over the network. Um, they can communicate indirectly through message brokers or through some storage medium. And those messages, those protocols, have serialization formats and they have schema. And those can evolve over time. And so what happens when you make a change that your new software knows how to interpret, but your last version of software does not. And then that former version of software receives such a message. Does it do an incorrect thing or does it do a correct thing? This could lead to a durability problem depending on the nature of the evolution. So the primary uh, mechanism for dealing with this is protocol versioning. As you change your protocol, you increment a version that is gonna um, get shipped along with your messages or get stored along with your data. Servers with a particular piece of code know what version they're capable of processing up until. When they see something in the future, they're free to reject whatever they see, right? So they can drop the message. If they're reading it from storage, they can just fail whatever request they were working on. And in that, in that way, it looks a lot like what we did with corruption when you see a checksum failure. And so this is another example of taking something complicated, like trying to deal with messages effectively from the future, and turning it into something simple, like packet loss. However, if we were to deploy all of our software in this way, then every deployment we'd see availability um, drops, right? Because every time we push software out, like half the fleet couldn't talk to the other half of the fleet. And so what we do is we do read-write deployments, where first we deploy code capable of reading the new format, and once we believe that is everywhere, then we start deploying code capable of producing the new format. And so when you start producing a new format, it's with the expectation that all of your surroundings already know how to interpret it. If we somehow didn't uh, get the read code everywhere, it's still safe because those readers will reject it. Um, but, in, it but by doing read-write deployments, you minimize the chance that you actually cause an availability issue while you're, while you're deploying. Um, and with all this, you want to make sure that you're actually testing your protocol versioning protections too. And so your tests should be um, you know, capturing versions of all different serializations from the beginning of time and making sure that all different versions of your serializers and deserializers or whatever you want to call them are capable of handling each one of those correctly. A more subtle um, problem that occurs here is that Service, services don't just communicate with each other. Sometimes they communicate with themselves. Now, you might have some local state. For example, some configuration file or maybe some information um, that you've been noticing about your own environment that you write to disk. Now, what if you evolve that? And you evolve it in such a way that if you were to roll back, you actually can't cold start anymore because now what's on disk is a different format than the old version of software recognizes and somehow it creates a poison pill when that software tries to come up. What you don't want to happen is to push your code out to production, realize there's an unrelated problem, you need to go roll it back, but then realize you can't roll back because all of your services have changed their local state in a way that prevents the predecessor from ever coming up. That's not a situation you want to be in. So rollback testing is important just to make sure you can go back and forth between your code on your different services. Okay, so this is the last of the, uh, of the six. And this one's about operators. Um, so it's a pretty simple threat model. Humans make mistakes. We must ensure that our operators are not exposed to situations where mistakes can lead to data loss. We assume an adversary, who in this case is, is the operator. They're not a malicious adversary, um, but they may be using the tools incorrectly. And we never want to put them in that spot. And so SP as a service, as we said at the start of the talk, is, is depended on by loads and loads of applications. 
And so if things aren't where we want them to be in terms of performance or availability at, at any point in time, the team drops everything and operators step in to, to get them to a good spot. And so in that spot, we want our operators to be safe and effective. And so to do this, there are a bunch of things that we do. And we've, we've spent tons of time, and we really, really focus on making sure that the tools that the operating team, the operators, engage with operating the service are safe. And so first of all, we automate. We automate like crazy. Right? We, we try to uh, address issues or uh, unusual behaviors in automation before the operators need to touch anything. And then if they do, we try to give them very, very uh, safe and coarse-grained tools to achieve common actions. Uh, we also are really, really careful with privilege in the system. And we make sure that, in general, operators only have the privilege they need at a given point in time to do their job. And so this means doing things like tying privilege to on-call time, right? That you only need special privileges with the system if you're actually responding to operational events. At the end, on this side of things, um, the thing that we really want to avoid is improvisation, right? That um, if you get into a situation where you're trying to, to uh, debug and operate uh, during an event, it shouldn't be like you are making stuff up from scratch. You should be playing to a code-reviewed set of tools uh, that you can trust. And so we work really hard to build tooling uh, that doesn't require unnecessary input, that performs and can be tested uh, outside of the event really safely. And we prioritize improvements to those tools above pretty much everything uh, to make sure that the system is safe, not just to run in a steady state, but to operate uh, in unusual states. All right. So those were some of the common uh, threats that we see and how we modeled them and some of the mitigations or mechanisms that we put in place. Um, those are all quite technical, and they're all kind of very tactical things that software developers do on a day-to-day -day basis. Let's talk about some organizational best practices. Um, the first thing we're going to talk about are two types of reviews that we do. You know, we all do reviews, lots of different types of reviews. There's code reviews, design reviews, et cetera. Um, I want to talk about durability reviews in root cost analysis reviews. So a durability review is where a team of um, authors of a particular feature or component actually produce a written document. Like uh, You might have heard that Amazon is known for these six-page memos. Um, it could be a six-page document. It could be a two-page document. It could be a 20-page document. But it's a written document that captures the durability threats of whatever software components being proposed to go out to production. This could be an incremental change in an existing component or a brand new component itself. This uh, document is presented in a meeting. It's an interactive working meeting where the presenters also have with them some set of reviewers. And these reviewers tend to be more experienced team members. They could be members of the S3 team, or you could draw from the broader AWS organization. And it's really an interactive discussion it's not a one-sided presentation where the, the, author, the authoring team is saying, here's what's going out into production, take it or leave it. It's not like that. Um, it's a back and forth where the threats are discussed. We discuss what threats um, you know, might be missing, whether the mitigations are right. And there's often a set of action items that come out of this meeting. And we will delay features if we have to. Um, if there are action items that the team needs to work on. And so this is very much something that helps make our, our features better when they launch. So just, just in case it, it didn't come across at the beginning of this, this, this durability review, it's, it's a bit different than like a functional review or a specification review that you might do early in development. This is a mechanism that we have pretty late in developing a feature that has durability exposure, and it's a review that gates putting the completed software out into production, right? So it's an opportunity for the team to get on board with that. Yep, and it's often, like, like you said, it's after, you know, after your design and whatnot. Um, there is a risk if it's too late, and then there are some issues found that you have to kind of go back to the drawing board. And so kind of earlier is, is a little bit better, um, but it, it tends to be after you kind of have a sense of what you're building. Um, and it's also a good learning opportunity for more junior team members. So I mentioned that you know, the reviewers are sort of experienced team members, but especially in a storage service like S3, we want all of our team members to become experienced team members. Now, we don't expect uh, you know, a fresh college hire to come straight in and just have a sense of like, how to model uh, threat model durability. 
right? But after exposure to, to this sort of review, repeatedly, um, people tend to develop pretty good instincts. And it's actually kind of neat when you see somebody present something where they've been through this before, and they've anticipated all the feedback and kind of caught everything early. Um, and so those reviews tend to be relatively uneventful, and, and they're able to, um, you know, they're, they're able to kind of sit on the other side of the table going forward. But it's really a good teaching mechanism for help growing the organization. All right, so I'm going to talk about root cause analysis reviews. Now, um, I think, uh, was it Werner's keynote that talked about no compression algorithm for experience? I think that was the, the phrase that he had. Um, we talk about commonly how our experience, you know, over a decade running Amazon.com, over a decade since then running AWS, um, just gives us kind of unparalleled reliability. That doesn't come for free. You have to actually turn that experience into learning, right? Otherwise, you're just letting things happen to you. These root cause analysis reviews are how we take experience and turn them into meaningful learning. These are common in other industries as well. You see them in aviation a lot after an accident or after even a near miss. Near miss is, is a great opportunity to, uh, to look at what happened. You might not have done any harm to anything, but you, you saw something that perhaps was a risk that you can address in the future. And these reviews identify the root cause and prioritize improvements. And the most important aspect of them is, is that they are non-judgmental. Even if a mistake was made, people are not blamed. People are not called out by name. We found that if you, um, by creating a blameless culture, you encourage people to be honest about what happens. And if people have to hide what happened or sweep things under the rug, you're not going to be able to turn experience into learning. It just won't work. So you have to create a place that is safe for people, even the people who made a mistake, to be able to say exactly what happened to the most senior levels of management, and it's totally fine. This is the format of the review. Again, it's an actual document. Um, so you first talk about what happened, and here you really start with the customer. It's tempting to just say, you know, component XYZ failed. And the common question is, okay, so what, right? But if you start with the customer, you can say something like, okay, from October 21st, 8.20 p.m. to 8.34 p.m., S3 customers experienced a 3% failure rate on the GET API. Um, then you start to get a sense of like why you actually care about what happened. And then from there, you know, the what happened can be like a two-paragraph executive summary. Then you talk about how could it have been handled better. This is during the event. This isn't about preventing the event, but during the event, did you have the right people engaged? Did you have the right monitors? Did you have the right tooling in place? You know, what could you have improved about the event itself? Why did it happen? This is the most important part of, um, of the review. This is where you really drill into the root cause and figure out like, what went wrong in your system. And then what will you change? These are action items. They're definitions of what you will change with the owners, typically a manager um, who will have their team work on it, and a date that they owe it by. And this will often displace roadmap items that we've already previously planned. These are the most important pieces of our roadmap that we have. And so if, if our service, you know, in terms of reliability, isn't where we want it to be, as evidenced by some service disruption, um, we will drop everything and prioritize these action items. So I want to drill into, uh, I guess, no pun intended, the five whys a little bit. So first, I'm going to show an, uh, an example of bad whys. OK, and these are bad because they're too broad and they don't go deep. Why was there a service disruption? Because the service returned a high rate of errors to customers. Why did recovery take so long? Because the team didn't shut down all broken servers for 22 minutes. Why did detection take so long? Our monitoring was misconfigured. None of these build on each other. They're, they read more like FAQs, and I still don't even have a sense of what went wrong here. I do want to mention, though, the five and the five whys is just sort of a rule of thumb. Like, if this were a good set, three would be fine. Um, it doesn't have to be exactly five. Here's a good example. Why was there a service disruption? Because the service returned a high rate of errors to customers. Why did the service return a high rate of errors? Because the clients were failing to connect to the servers. Why were the clients failing to connect? Because the servers were garbage collecting heavily. Why were they garbage collecting heavily? Because they were consuming more than the available heap. Why were they consuming more than the available heap? 
because they aren't properly tuned to the current workload. Okay, and maybe this is where I stop, and I can imagine an action item where I tune my servers properly for the workload that they're getting or any, any other appropriate action item. But these are better because each question builds on the last question. Um, you really want to kind of imagine that you're, you're a three-year-old or a five-year-old and just ask, why, why, why? And oftentimes, that's the role I'll take in one of these reviews is uh, I'll just literally ask that one question to the presenter, why, right? Why this, why that? And it helps them get deeper. You're not limited to just one of these threads. Often these issues or these events have compounding issues, and so you could have a, th a thread of whys per issue. Um, you want to make sure you capture everything. But the five whys is a good tool at drilling into the actual root cause. In addition to these reviews, guardrails are very important practice. Guardrails are things that you put in place where you have your threat model, right? So you're protecting yourself against durability. However, you have these, this durability and depth that you want to achieve. And so although you're protected because you've addressed all of your threats, you also want to have mitigations in case those fail. Common ones are backup restore. If you're going to backup, though, please test restore. If you do not test your restore, you don't know that you can. Similar to if you don't test rollback, you don't know that you can. Um, undo buffers, if you have a way to reverse an action that you took, it makes the consequences of the action um, less severe if you did it in, in error. Log-only deployments, so if your system is taking some mutating action on your data and you want to change that, if you have a way to deploy that such that the change is really just in your logs and doesn't actually take effect, then you can review those logs later and get confidence that your change is going to do the right thing. And you can have that running for hours, days, weeks, months, however long you want, depending on what the nature of your change is. And then, of course, zonal deployments, which we talked about earlier, which is about taking, like, you're already, like, we're already designed um, to lose an entire zone. Um, and so by deploying a zone at a time, if, if that software goes bad, it's, it's within the current uh, mitigations and mechanisms that we have. So now we're going to switch gears. And for the last set of the uh, talk, we're going to talk about applying some of these things to your own applications, and specifically uh, some opportunities, especially if you're building on top of S3, to take advantage of some of this stuff. Um, now, one thing that's really worth, I think, reemphasizing from the stuff that Seth just talked about is earlier in the talk, we talked about really like mechanistic, right, technical and mechanistic aspects that we've like, learned and developed as the service has scaled in terms of durability, things like facility failure and dealing with bugs and stuff like that. But the second set that Seth just went through is, is just as if not more important, right? That we spend a lot of time in terms of scaling the organization, making sure that there is an environment where especially new, more junior developers can become really skilled and really like sharply able to spot problems and comfortable pointing them out as quickly as possible. And so that's a thing that, that we spend like, loads of time trying to encourage. And so you'll see simple things, like when we do those reviews, the COEs or the durability reviews, the senior folks tend to try and wait and talk later. Right? We tend to be really, really um, encouraging and to focus on getting those like, often simpler questions out of, of folks that are new to the team because they bring a bunch of insight that we might overlook. And so we really want to want to encourage that, and that's a thing that you can absolutely do on your own, on your own stuff if you don't already. Um, okay, so let's, let's talk through applying these to some problems, imagining that you're building an application on top of S3. Um, and so super um, sort of, I guess, maybe a textbook S3 example would be that you're building some kind of photo sharing application for mobile phones that let you apply pictures or print things or whatever. But the, the pattern overall is that you have a huge repository of your own customers' images inside S3, and you have an application that lets them take pictures and maybe edit them and, and work with them. And you're concerned about durability. Now, Seth mentioned early in the talk the MD5 mechanism on puts, right? The content MD5 sum is a way of extending durability outside of, of AWS's remit, right? We, we can't control the network's leading into uh, the DMARC into AWS, but those networks could corrupt data. And so MD5 is a way of reaching out there. And so this is kind of thinking all the way up into the application stack for the software that you build around durability. 
And so you can do the exact same thing that we started the talk with, right? You can ask these same adversarial questions to focus on durability problems. It's useful to think about what you're protecting, right? What your durability concerns are for your business because intermediate data that gets generated as the middle of a Spark or MapReduce job doesn't have typically the same durability concerns as those photos that are like core customer content. And you may want to treat them differently. And then you can build out a threat model, right? And you can build them out on different aspects of what you're protecting and what you're protecting against. And we can kind of work through this through the eyes of that hypothetical customer. And so let's, let's try a few. Um, first one is around uh, the fact that client-side bugs, right, bugs on your phone or in your network or, or whatever, might cause um, problems that introduce data corruption outside of S3. And so the simple sort of threat model that we work through here is that we want to protect uploaded images from corruption, but we don't want to, we don't control all of the hardware and software on the mobile device that customers use to upload images. And we don't control the networks that they use to send them. Yeah, and so the best ways to deal with that are really like strong checksumming on the way in. Um, and the best ways for that are first to use HTTPS, um, because TLS has a much better checksumming story than just plain old uh, TCP. Um, and uh, the integrity headers that we provide, content MD5, is, is a great way to express to us what we ought to be expecting to get over the wire. Right. And we will reject those put requests if the content MD5 does not match. Uh, second example is the extremely unlikely risk of a regional issue. Right? As we've explained, we have tons of mechanisms inside S3 across AZs uh, and in the stack to protect data regionally. Uh, but in some cases, we might worry about durability in a single region because the data set is so critical for our business. Uh, and in a lot of senses, the data set may be our business. Yeah, and uh, so we offer uh, cross-region replication. This is a feature where you can actually pair buckets in separate regions, and puts into the source region will get replicated into the destination region. Uh, just a couple days ago, I believe, we launched replication time control, which offers an SLA on the replication times as well. And then finally, as a third example, and this one is probably if you are developing applications on top of S3, one of the ones that you should like, really take from the talk is the, the risk of accidental deletion of high-value data. Right? This is a, uh, you know, it's, a, it's, it's a real risk in terms of developing that uh, bugs or misconfigurations can result in S3 deletes being issued against data that you don't want to delete. And in S3, deletes are deletes. There's no recovery. There's GDPR and other compliance reasons that once data is deleted, that it is unrecoverable from our perspective. And so you need to think about ways to make your data safe from this kind of edge. Yeah, and you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of customers ask us for features that actually put more friction into the delete process, which is kind of interesting, right? Because most, most feature requests you'd imagine like make, make such and such easier. But delete is one of those things where customers actually want features in place that make that operation harder to use. Um, and not that this you know, makes it harder, but it's certainly more involved. So object versioning right, is a feature that we offer where if you do an overwrite to an object or a delete to an object, it creates this versioning stack. And so the delete will actually put a delete marker in the stack, which makes the object appear to be deleted, but you could always delete the delete marker and get your object back. Overwrites would pile up in the stack as well. You could set lifecycle policies on your object versions and say something like, you know, once a version is not current, you know, once it's lower in the stack for more than X number of days, then go ahead and delete it. And so what a lot of customers would do is turn on versioning with, let's say, a seven or a 14-day lifecycle policy. And then if they were to do something against their bucket that they didn't mean to do, they, can, they have seven to 14 days to detect it and, and reverse the operation, which is actually pretty powerful for those customers. Uh, another mechanism that exists in the S3 stack is, is multi-factor delete, where you need a second factor to commit a delete. Um, another one is... Yeah, so object lock is, is another, where you can actually set a, um, a particular field on your objects that will prevent deletion until uh, some particular date that you specify in the future. And there's two modes of this. There's uh, governance mode and compliance mode. Um, with one... Uh, you still can delete it with a special permission. With the other, you cannot delete the data once it is set. 
And then there's uh, CRR, the cross-region replication, and even same-region replication can be configured with an owner override where the target uh, for data to be written into is in a different account, which means that uh, a delete in one account, you need credentials on the second account to be able to delete the data. So it's an extra mechanism to engineer safely. safety. There's a, there's a fifth example that's emerged even this week in customer conversations, and I guess recently in, in some design examples that we've seen, where we see customers taking advantage of uh, deep archive, right? That the, the pricing on deep archive is attractive enough that it kind of like displaces the opportunity cost of delete. And so we'll see customers, instead of deleting, moving data down onto deep archive, and then either leaving it there because they think that it might have some analytic value in the future, or just staging it there for a period of time and then deleting it because in deep archive, it's, it's out of you know, direct S3, and so they'll expect to take bugs Right, they'll expect to notice if the data is not there, but it's still recoverable. All right, so uh, we went over some of the lessons from security, right, and how those kind of poured over to durability. We talked about uh, the common threats that we see, the organizational best practices, the durability review, the root cause analysis review, guardrails, all super important, and then gave you a little flavor of how to build your own threat models and the sorts of features that you know, S3 provides to aid you in, in doing, uh, implementing your durability mechanisms. And uh, despite a, uh, a limping start, uh, Seth, we covered a lot of ground. <laughs> I was directly on time. We're 24 seconds early. And we're, we're just up at the end. So uh, thanks very much for coming. Uh, we'll stick around in the hall outside if anybody has questions that, that they'd like to go through. Please fill out the surveys. They, they help us inform us what to, what to offer in these oh, talks yeah. in subsequent years. So thank you, everyone. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs>